William, William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. Kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. <laughs> Alright folks, welcome to Man Cave Movie Review, the podcast reviews the good, the bad, and the ugly of movies for men. This is episode 37, and today we're talking about Braveheart. This fantastic movie stars Mel Gibson, Patrick McGowan, Brendan Gleeson, and Sophie Marceau as our irrelevant female star. I am your host, Steve Michaels, and joining me is my good and dear friend, Mark. Does this kilt make my ass look fat slower? <laughs> The Almighty tells me he can get me out of this podcast, but he's pretty sure you two are fucked. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very good. Nice. Love it. And also joining us, maybe for the last time after he hears this one, is my my good and dear friend, Jeff Shortshanks Muncie. (laughs) Bravo. Golf laugh. See, he just turned red, so I don't know if that's a good sign or bad. It's either from humor or he's already... Is he still on camera? Did he go to his car keys? He did get his car keys. I hear him jingle jangling. Gosh. Who is this person who speaks to me as though I need his advice? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, very well done. Awesome comeback. I I stand here. It's as if we had planned that out, but man, I'm telling you. And I'm telling you, we did not. I when you're did. on it, you're on it. Excellent. Very well done. Okay, uh, folks, our other good and dear friend, Ken, sending the Irish because the dead cost nothing. Brony uh, is unable to be with us tonight because he found something infinitely more entertaining to spend his time with, which I think he told me was rearranging a sock drawer. Uh, but anyway... Uh, we're talking about Braveheart. Uh, this is a film that was actually uh, recommended to us by one of our uh, faithful listeners, and I won't disclose his name, but uh, uh, Mr. Allen, this one's for you, Chief. I hope you like what we uh, have to talk about it, and uh, just bear in mind, I actually did like this movie. The other two guys, hey, what can I say? Anyway, this movie is about William Wallace, and he is a, uh, a legendary character in, uh, or actually a legendary person from Scotland, who unites 13th century Scots in their battle to overthrow English rule. This movie, as I said, has a pretty good cast, uh, Mel Gibson being a main draw. Uh, Brendan Gleeson is his good and dear friend, Hamish, who, to be honest with you, you see him in a bunch of stuff nowadays. I think he was in uh, Gangs of uh, New York. He played, uh, gosh, I can't remember the name. And it doesn't even look like him because the way he's made up in this, I don't even recognize him in a lot of the other movies that he plays. But he's one of those guys, as soon as you see him, you recognize him. Uh, Sophie Marceau, uh, seen her in a few things. Uh, not too many. She's, she's mostly uh, doing a lot of stuff in Europe. Uh, and one of the old classic actors, Patrick McGowan. There's some other pretty good character actors in this. Uh, uh, two of them, uh, one I really like is James Cosmo. He is one of the actually few Scottish actors that are in this movie. And the other uh, actor that uh, we've talked about in the past is uh, Brian Cox. We saw we talked about him in uh, Ironclad. Uh, he plays 
uh, his uh, William Wallace's Uncle Argyle. Uh, for a movie about Scots, there's very few Scots in the movie. Like I said, the plot's about uh, William Wallace, his uh, attempt to unify the Scots against the, the horrible English at that time. I don't know, guys. I like this movie. Obviously, there's a lot of issues in this movie from a historical factor, but you know, we're talking, uh, what, mid-13th century, going into the 14th century. We're, the history's a little iffy on this. He's, he's not quite King Arthur in the sense of a legend. I mean, there is some references on him, but there's no real hard record on, on him in particular. I think there's a poem out there by Blind Harry that kind of chronicles a lot of his uh, exploits. But overall, this movie is... What I would say this movie is, this movie reminds me a little bit in terms of history of Gladiator. They took a lot of historical people and kind of made a movie around them. Not necessarily historically accurate, but it gives you an idea of the period. Mark, what do you think? What do you think about the movie? This is one of those movies that I think as a movie I enjoyed a lot when I saw it in the theater. But as I have watched it over time... It's one of those movies that I have found that I like the parts more than the whole. Mm-hmm. It, it attempts to be an epic in the in the sense of the types of movies that used to get made, such as um, Lawrence of Arabia, of that type of sweeping epic about an individual and a time and a period. And it doesn't quite arrive there. Um, it does not. It does not. It does not get to the level it, in my mind of that type of a classic epic of Lawrence of Arabia or movies like that. But it has some very good character actors. I would not call it historic historical beyond the names of the players. I wouldn't call it historical fiction. I would call it fictional history. <laughs> um, it's alternate, it, it, it is an alternative universe of what Mel Gibson and the writer wanted the Scottish history to be. Again, and from... From that side, I've got a lot of problems with it. As a guy movie, it's got a lot of qualities that are great about guy movies that really revolve around friendship and duty and loyalty to your friends and sticking with people through thick and thin and doing what you believe is right. It it is a quintessential guy movie in that respect. Um, And it's fun to watch the character actors that are in this movie, especially Patrick McGowan. The only thing he's missing in his mustache is that it's long enough that he could twirl it. He does such the evil guy so well. But we'll get into a lot of the nuts and bolts of this movie. But that's just kind of my um, 30,000-foot view. Oh, and I'll just say it right now. Princess Isabel, um, if there had been a glass window we could have thrown her through, we might as well have just done that really early on. But there's no class in the 13th century, so we can't. Well, we already give away our first uh, our first checklist piece, but that's okay. Couldn't I couldn't hold back. Hi, that's okay. Jeff, your thoughts? They're they're very similar to Mark's. I try to view this movie as uh, as just that a, a movie, and I try not to think too much about the history. We, we talked uh, in, in a, about a few prior movies. You know, this is really historical fiction. I'm trying to frame it as far as a as a movie piece. You know, this seemed to almost. This movie is to uh, Mel Gibson as what Dances with Wolves was to Kevin Costner. Wow. And I'm only saying, I'm not, what I mean by that is, 
this was a passion and a love that Mel Gibson wanted to bring to the screen. And just like Dances with Wolves was something that Kevin Costner really was passionate about bringing to the screen. This was something that he worked hard for, he put his love into, and he wanted it to be an epic. Both movies by both directors and stars, they wanted this to be an epic movie. And in a sense, it is. It is an epic movie. And when you compare it to 1995, this is one of, you know, this is one of the main modern epic movies during that time period. In general, it works. I think it really does as, as a movie piece. I, I'm really going to save you guys and the listening audience a lot of pain and suffering by me lamenting and just bashing to death the irrelevant storyline of Queen Isabella, who not only was she nine at the time that William Wallace was going on his rampage, okay, she wasn't remotely close to being married to the, the prince. It is utterly ridiculous. That said, that's all I'm going to say until later on in the show. <laughs> This is this movie is the perfect example of what I absolutely hate about these movies that are unnecessary. It, it, it really defines it for me, and it's probably in the top three examples of how ridiculous and pointless that role is, and that's what I hate about these movies. Going past that, surprisingly, I'm not too thrilled about the s- cinematography in this movie. I don't think it's that outstanding. It's It's okay, don't get me wrong. But what I do appreciate about this movie is this is really one of the first times that we see these sweeping epic battle scenes. And I don't think you had a lot of CGI to to mimic that like you did in Lord of the Rings. This is still early on. And so you had to have a lot of people out there. And anytime somebody can organize a bunch of people to react a certain way on film in unison, let's just say it. I mean, this is some of the best you can get as far as mass actors doing something at the same time and it not looking like somebody is running at somebody with a bayonet with the bayonet pointed at the ground and the heel stuck up in the air like you did in Gettysburg at times. This looks like a bunch of people who are going at each other with swords and pikes and battle axes and maces and flails and just lions and tigers and bears. Oh, Um, my. Jeff, uh, let me jump in there real quick because, you know, you're absolutely right about that. This is one of those movies that there was uh, very little CGI. I don't think there was any CGI in this movie. No, I don't think there was. There wasn't no. any because it really – this this movie is like, – I got to look back at the year it was made. I want to say it was like 94 – oh, 95. So in 95, I mean, CGI was really just kind of coming into its own at that point. And it wasn't used for this, but this is a piece of trivia, and I'm just going to jump ahead real quick to kind of go on that because the battle scenes were very graphic. It's one of those things when they did the Battle of Sterling. You were sitting there watching saying, oh, man, these guys are really wailing on each other. Uh, and I might just read this piece of the trivia, and they said that the extras used for the battle scenes were mostly members of the FCA, which is the Irish version of the Territorial Army. They were drawn from many different army companies, and these members are usually drawn from the same locality. Kind of sounds like our, uh, almost like the uh, Civil War regiments that were drawn up during um, uh, the American Civil War. So there was local rivalry between such companies, which was common. Apparently, some of the battle scenes seen in the movie are far more realistic than you might imagine, because rival companies are actually using the occasion to beat the living lard out of each other. So... Because there were sometimes, I mean, if you're if you don't look at like what's in front of it, but if you look in the background, I mean, you really see people wailing at each other. And I think it was one of those where they went out there with some, uh, you know, some of the fake uh, armor, and they're just like, you know, I'm just going to take you out. <laughs> and I, I would imagine that a fair, fairly liberal amount of beer and whiskey had been ladled out before people laid I, into each other. 
I have to admit, this is one of the movies when when it first came out and I saw it, and I saw it at the theater, and I I just remember just during that initial battle at uh, Sterling. I mean, I, I literally remember just kind of like sinking back in my chair looking at it because up until that point, I had really never seen anything like that, and I probably didn't see anything like that again until Saving Private Ryan. So you know, that that was that forceful, that much impact, the graphic, the in-your-face violence. And I'm not saying it was like gore. I'm not saying it was like Saw, that type thing. But it was just very abrupt. The violence was just very abrupt. And it looked like an actual battle taking place. I mean, I have to say it's one of, the, in my mind, and I've said it before in one of the previous shows, I'd have to rank it up there in some of the you know top five or top ten battle scenes that I've ever seen. That particular yeah. one, anyway. I, I completely agree with you, and, and I just like I compare this to Braveheart in the sense of this, the scope of the movie. This is this is not your daddy Spartacus, right? And 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 I was talking to Mark about this. I think they do a really good job of of playing it both ways in the sense of yeah, there there's there are the guy parts of the movie and there's the female parts of the movie, um, and the guy parts of the movie focus on. Um, I mean the battle scenes, but they're not so gross and over the top like an ironclad, okay? Where there are you know buckets of blood everywhere, right? <laughs> it's it's graphic, yeah, and it's graphic for the time period, and it's shocking, sort of like Saving Private Ryan. You know that first time when that ramp comes down on that landing craft, people were leaving the theater, mm-hmm. and I don't want to say droves, but I remember three or four people just getting up and leaving because it shocked you. It was the same visceral effect in this. It was just, it was something you just didn't see and you really weren't prepared for. But it wasn't so over the top and it wasn't, and there wasn't so much of it. They had the right amount for what they needed for the show. They really caught you off guard. They got you drawn in on that. And, you know, and then, you know, you would, you know, change in scenery later on. The movie itself, um, what we're kind of going where Mark was and, and you kind of touched on it, where this movie really works for me is, is in two areas. The supporting cast is yes. outstanding. Mm-hmm. His his entourage that he carries with him is is just is fantastic to watch. They're so believable in what they're doing. They play believable roles. They got great actors to do it. Um, Longshanks, I don't I don't think you could have got any of the classic actors like Richard Harris or anybody else to do that role. I think they perfectly um, casted the actor McGowan, right? Yep. Um, to play that role. I mean, that was the role he was born for. Um, one of the other actors I really enjoy is Angus McFadden, who plays Robert the Bruce. Yes. And and I know that was a, a kind of a, a, a kind of a contention that a, a, some of the Scots had with this movie is they felt that Robert the Bruce was portrayed in a way that they really didn't think was too favorable, um, sort of a weak guy until the very end. And to a point, I think the Scots uh, looked to Robert the Bruce as as more of a hero than maybe William Wallace. Because Robert the Bruce, from what I understand, he's kind of like their uh, George Washington. If, Correct. I mean, you had you know, I think probably William Wallace would have been our equivalent of, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, Daniel Boone, that type of guy. But uh, I, I'm just, again, I could be completely off. And uh, my apologies to any of our listeners from uh, Scotland if I'm completely screwing the pooch on my analogies. I, I thought they portrayed uh, the Bruce in a very weak type of position where he was overly influenced by his father. 
I really wish I could sit down with with uh, Mel Gibson and just kind of pick his brain without him screaming and yelling at me about why he made a lot of the ch- decisions that he did in this movie that really deviated from from history a lot. You know, they they go through these extremes to make things uh, you know vastly different than they really were in 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 history. But even his dad, you can almost understand the measures that he's going through. Because again, it, it's what can I do for my clan? And I don't think people understand that that's you know that's how things were reviewed as clans, and it's what's best for my clan, not what's best for the United States of clans. It's what's best for my clan. Yeah, you're Scots, and I'll go to bat for you, but really, I I want my clan to make out better than your clan. Mark well, pointed. Let me, let me hop in there real quick. Please Scotland do. Is, Scotland is more of a place than a nation state, and I think that's something that is difficult for people to understand to your point about clans jeff scotland is a place in in this period of time there's lowland scots there's highland scots and everybody is in a tribe or a clan we're all in it for our own reasons and the the term of scotland really in this period the 12th century is a place yes it's a it it is a country it does have its own identity but it is not a nation by any stretch of the imagination and there is a great quote by Robert the Bruce that I'll play later uh, during um, uh, the clips that pretty much sums that up, and I'll play that later on. But that is one thing <clears throat> about this movie, and I'm going to say it right now, that I think really got across very well was the politics. I think the politics of this movie was was presented very well in terms of who was out for who. I mean, you saw what... Um, Edward I, Longshanks, wanted. You saw what the different Scottish nobles wanted. You saw what William Wallace wanted. And everybody was going off in in a different direction. And every side was playing each other off. Well, and even more so, and I get it because I have, in in my own small little way, I have a family and and I have to make a house payment every month. The people who had something in the sense of the nobles – had it on both sides of the border. They were landed on both sides of the border. And they weren't going to come out and take on the English king, who was powerful and who had the ability, the capital, the army, and the determination to go smack Scots around if they got too out of hand, unless it was a guaranteed thing. You're not going to put your hard-earned lifestyle on the line for just any old reason. And I thought that they did a very pretty good job of demonstrating that and the confliction that these guys had. Because a lot of these guys were conflicted. They understood it, but they were also going, well, is this really the time and what's the cost? And you may not like that. You may think, oh, they're, they're chicken shits, whatever. Well, I defy any one of us to say we wouldn't stop and think about that, depending on how much we had invested. Right. It wasn't a unified country. I mean, it was kind of like we would look at Afghanistan today. I mean, it's it was tribal. I mean, it, that, I mean, that's the best way to look at it. You had just different clans or different tribes that were looking out for their own interests. I I, I really kind of want to move on to actors a little bit. Uh, there's actually two actors in particular that I want to talk about. And there's one guy in the movie, and we've talked about him before. He was an ironclad. Again, these are supporting actors. Don't really want to talk about Mel Gibson because everybody knows who he is. But uh, the guy that played Uncle Argyle was Brian Cox. And I love this dude. Everything I've ever seen him in, he's just awesome. And he is in the movie for, gosh, I think he's in the movie maybe 90 seconds. 
and I'm probably being generous with the 90 seconds. No, he's in, he's in there for several minutes because he, he, okay. he, he rides up, introduces himself, and then they go up and have a conversation over some meals and some things. I mean, he's, he's in there for less than five minutes, though. Yeah, he's uh, he basically plays uh, uh, William Wallace's uh, uncle, and he uh, raised him, uh, which you don't see because all that is taking uh, place off screen. But he pretty much raised him in that. But uh, Brian Cox, and I, I was kind of disappointed that I didn't see more of him in this movie. But when I went and read the trivia, evidently he was offered a much bigger part and turned it down. Uh, he thought that the uh, character of uh, Uncle Argyle or Argyle Wallace was what he wanted to do. So he actually turned out a much bigger part that I would have liked to have seen him in. Because uh, I really like that guy. I've seen him in a ton of stuff. And I, I just, I like his uh, portrayal and everything he does. I've never seen him in the bad, I mean, I've seen him in bad movies, but he's one of those things where I'll go see the bad movie just to see him in it because he's such a good actor. The other actor that uh, I've seen in a bunch of stuff, and he is one of the other uh, uh, true uh, Scotsman, is uh, James Cosmo. And he played uh, Campbell, which was uh, Hamish's uh, dad, and Hamish was uh, William Wallace's best friend. You know, I've seen that guy in a bunch of stuff. I mean, he's he's been all over. He's in a lot of Brit movies. But uh, he's another guy that is just, when he's in a movie, he just has a presence about him. And he really brings a lot into the movie. Again. Something, something that I've seen him in recently that he did a great job in was uh, Sons of Anarchy. It's one of the, it's a, uh, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a show on, uh, on, uh, FX. Oh, I actually played in a, an, an Irish, uh, a father, um, in the movie as in father, uh, church father, uh, priest just really chewed just some great scenery and really to me made the season for me as a season for me to get through. Uh, I think it was like the second or third season of the show. It played a great role, and he sort of played sort of a godfather-type figure in a sense. Just to your point, Steve, what a great guy to watch on the screen. And something that I was really happy to see is is he has uh, he has five movies that he's coming out in in like the next two years. And he is he is well well respected and also uh, being well cast still in, in a lot of stuff that's coming out. But he's been, yeah, he's been in a ton of stuff, and he just has a a presence about him that is menacing, menacing, but this, at the same time, just almost fatherly. Yes. Well, and another one's Brendan Gleeson. Yes, absolutely. Who plays Hamish? Mm-hmm. He was. You, you, if you ever saw Kingdom of Heaven, he was Reynold de Chatillon. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then he was what? Mad Eye Moody. He was Mad Eye Moody. And if you have not seen Guard, which is a movie with, um, oh, I can't remember the other actor in it. He is an Irish cop, and he teams up. It's the with Don Cheadle. It's the you know, it's two guys who don't have anything in common. It takes place in Ireland about a drug deal, and it he is just such a low key, likable and unlikable, irascible character in that movie. I just like this actor because he he is. Every time he appears, you kind of look at him, and he's like Brian Cox. It's like, is that Brendan Gleeson? <laughs> yes. You know, it's funny, Mark, you say that because actually Emily and I, uh, might have been a couple of months ago, her and I sat down and watched this movie, Braveheart. And when uh, the scene with Amish came up, because she's a she's a big Harry Potter fan, and I said, you know, that's Mad-Eye Moody. 
And she goes, who? I go, that guy right there, the one that just got hit in the head with the rock. And she goes, no, it's not. I went, yeah, it is. She goes, that's not Mad Eye Moody. I said, well, again, this movie is made in 95. That was, you know, two years before you were born. So, yeah, he's aged a little bit. She goes, that's not him. I'm like, and her and I argue back and forth. So we walked over to the computer. I pulled it up, and she's like, oh, my God. I'm like, yeah, that's him. And, and he's a great actor. I love him because it's like guys like that have terrific range that they can play those type of characters. And it's not just because he's made up. I mean, it really doesn't even look like him. I mean, mm-hmm. 95 wasn't that long ago. I mean, yeah, yeah for some of us. But, it, you know, it, she couldn't even – I mean, to this day, she still can't look at him and go, that's not mad. <laughs> it doesn't even look like him. I'm like, I know, but anyway. But uh, the best actor in this movie, to my mind, the best character actor, who stole every scene he was in and was perfect for the role was Patrick McGowan as Longshanks. Yes. That character was written so broadly in the Professor Fate, Great Race, twirling, snidely whiplash, evil character. (laughs) And he made it, he made every scenery-chewing event where he appeared you just wanted to see more Longshanks because he took all of that that could have been with any other actor. You would have just rolled your eyes and went, ah, God, this is just such a caricature of evil. And he made it wonderfully enjoyable to watch. You're right. And one thing that, and you and I talked about this this afternoon, is it's like when he would talk about something, he would stare either at the person or away from the person. And it was piercing eyes it was unbelievable mm-hmm. and there would be scenes when he would either be talking directly at the person he was talking to you'd be like looking at the camera you almost got a chill well it, what it reminded me of is it, it is of that he always had he had that imperial that he felt like a king he was believable <laughs> he had that aura about him of are you addressing me <laughs> And me was not in the first person singular. It was in the third person. Are you addressing me? And he really made that. You believed he was King Edward. No one could have pulled that that off any better than he did. Again, the quote that uh, Jeff uh, slapped me back on was, (laughs) who was this person who speaks to me as I needed his advice? Well, and the way he delivered that line. Yes. It was as if there was a five-second delay between every word. Yes. He drew out that entire line. And, I mean, it was just dripping with malice. Yes. I, I would have just at that point realized, I might as well just go over and throw myself <laughs> out the window. <laughs> just save him the trouble. Well, you know what's funny about that when you said that is – the fact that when he started saying that, the camera flips over to Edward II, and you saw Edward II going, oh, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, and the best part, though, is when after we have the sudden descent and rapid deceleration, are the is when the three guards look up after the body has hit, they look up, realize it's the king, and go, oh, look, I need to be scarce. And they all go off their separate ways, like, nothing to see here. They went back to their post. Yep. Oh, look, a body falls out of a window every day around here when the king's around. You know, I thought about that a little bit. It's like, okay, how long does that sit there before we go, all right, we got to do this thing. Crows <laughs> coming now. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I actually thought about that yeah. kind of stuff because I'm weird and twisted that way. 
and we've all commented on this before, it's a real credit to English and Irish and Scottish actors. They, this is craft. We've all commented about that. They're not, they're not Hollywood actors. They're actors. This is yeah. a craft. And the way they present themselves, mm-hmm. it's always as if they are on a live stage. And I think that's what makes them, that's why we all enjoy watching these supporting and character actors do what they do so well because most of them were raised on the stage and bring that presence with them. Absolutely. And then can we talk about the women? Come on, Jeff, you want to talk about the women? You know what? Let's do it, gentlemen. Let's talk about the women in this movie because there's, there's two women in here that I want to talk about. There's one that I think is awesome and then the other one I have to actually honestly agree with my good and dear friend uh, Jeff Shortchains Muncie and say, yeah, she was completely irrelevant. And she was irrelevant historically for that matter. But we shall uh, proceed. Uh, Jeff, take it away. You're she not- is so irrelevant, it doesn't even warrant a conversation. <laughs> well, all righty then. Now, now, that said, the one female character I like in this movie is the lady-in-waiting to her. Jeanne Marine, or whatever her name is. I, I like her. She has fun with what little role she has. And I wish the roles had been reversed because she was spunky in that in the movie. That's the word I was going to come up with. She was spunky. That's exactly right. Yeah. And she was. She was fun to see. If, if, I, if I have to watch the uh, French princesses scenes, I'm glad the little blonde is behind her adding some comedy relief to it because, you know, people uh, criticize Natalie Portman's role as, uh, as Queen Amidala in the Star Wars trilogy. Let me tell you, I think she must have taken some lessons from this princess. Wow. Well, George Lucas could have stole that. There's your George Lucas steal. Would you guys stop? <laughs> you already stole mark that, two. Mark that one down. However, through it, let's just go ahead. If we're going to have a conversation about the other female role, which is perfectly fine for the movie, even though, again, I don't need it as uh, the, the antagonistic point of the movie that's going to spur me on to like the hero. However, I do like Catherine McCormick, who is H.O.T., and you know, it does a really good job in the movie. But it's another thing that I really despise about movies is we've got to we we have to kill the the girl so that way we you know we can understand the motivations of the actor. No, the motivations of the actor are he's tired of being beaten on by the English and he's going to go to war and and save his country. Well, let's back up. I. Th- I th- I think that is actually true, isn't it? I think that's uh, William Wallace. Or, or here's what happened, though. Oh. She did. Oh, it is true. I mean, they, they did at least to get that point. part right, but it was just after the fact. See, she was killed in re- kind of retribution or reprisal because um, William Wallace had been ha- had been instigating a lot of. Well, he he had been going on his rampage well before. The movie takes him on the rampage. So he had already been causing problems in Scotland. And as a response to that, the local sheriff ended up getting a hold of his wife. And yeah, he ended up killing her. And then, yes, it's true, you know, William Wallace came to, you know, avenge her death. But her death was actually in response to they were trying to bring him out because they were, they, that was the only way they could, they couldn't catch him. So they figured they would have him come to them. And he did. And he did what I think what happened in the movie. It wasn't what had spurred William Wallace on. He was already on his, I am going to be killing Englishmen because that's what I do. 
well before the whole death scene. Oh, okay. All right. And, and while we're talking about that, I, I think this movie, and if this is a segue and it works, that's great. I think one of the issues I have technically with this movie and with the writing is it's it's too long. And, and a good, I skipped over when we watched, I watched it for this review. I knew what was going to happen, but I skipped over the first 35, 40 minutes. That whole backstory went on too long. Yeah. That could have been compressed. And there are parts of this movie, the death scene goes on interminably. There are elements of this movie that just could have been pared down probably to the tune of 45 minutes. Well, in, and Mark, it drags in parts. It, it, I, it, it, it sags. I slightly disagree with you here. I don't mind the first part of the movie. There is some history here, and they're getting you to understand the history and, and appreciate it that, you know, you know, people are seeing their friends and family and neighbors, you know, butchered for eons. And so, of course, he grows up in this world, and, of course, he wants to go off and, and kill the Englishmen. And, and, you know, and, we're to, and again, it's another way for us to hate the English. It's just it's just more motivation for the audience to hate them, and that's all this is between the uh, uh, between that uh, killing the wife, the prima nocta, the you know the list of all the grievances that we are going to have against the king, which you know leads us to the you know climactic whispering at the end of the movie, which again couldn't have happened because the girl was freaking nine years old. All right. It reminds me of that time when I told you guys when we were seeing Lord of the Rings that anytime Liv Tyler is on the screen, <laughs> go to the bathroom. Okay. I mean, that's exactly what her role is here. It's really a pee break for the guys. Okay. And if that was his intention, man, Mel Gibson is just a sheer genius. All right. If he's like, okay, guys need to take a pee break now, I'm going to insert the princess in here. Brilliant. I say brilliant. And that's what I like to base my, you know, my, my, my judgment on his uh, his choice here. You're right. He probably did. He probably timed the amount of beer that guys are drinking during the movie. It's like, all right, bladder's full here. Head time. Princess. Well, I would like to go back, actually, Steve, and I want to see if maybe beer sales increased during this time because word got out that you need to drink a lot of beer um, to get through these princess scenes in this damn movie, okay? Yeah. But that's that's what I want to go check out. Pouring scotch down uh, uh, open wounds always helps. And, and I think, you know, we're kind of talking technical stuff now. My issue with some of the timing, your issue with some of the cinematography, and I agree with you, because they shot the bloody thing in Ireland, and there is some gorgeous scenery, but I, I had some problems with the way, to your point, I'd love to hear you talk about it, Jeff, the cinematography felt flat in many ways, and well, I can't it, explain why. Well, because everything there was too much going on in the scenes. You had, you, I mean, it was just a mass. Everything was all the all the main characters or the, the what the focus of the shot just filled up the entire scene. So you, but so you didn't have these. You know, sweeping backgrounds like you might have had, or sweeping um, uh, scenes like you did in um, um, Lord of the Rings. You know, where Peter Jackson is, you know, filming. You know, the the um, the world is part of it. You don't get that sense here. It's more. It's a it's a story about people and the events that they go through. I mean, even the scenes where you do actually have the background. Well, it, it's like you know, you're looking at the 
you know, in Kansas or something. It's just flat. You've got a few trees and rolling hills, and that's about it. It's really not too picturesque. It's not until you get, you know, in the, in the intro where you've got the, um, you know, the plane flying over the mountains, and you get this, wow, you know, we're in the Scottish Highlands, and this is great and beautiful. But you never get that, except in a couple of shots throughout the movie. It's also, you got to consider, it's misty. It's drizzly, it's rainy, It's the, the costumes are mostly drab. Um, you can only do so much with plaid, let's face it. Okay, Which didn't exist at that period, but yeah, I digress. Yeah, we, we, we digress. Uh, let's not get facts you know, caught up in the way of you know, storytelling. Oh, oh, muddy the beauty of a story. I know, facts. because if we, if we let facts get in the way, this movie is shite, okay? But <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not comparing this to history. I'm not. I'm really comparing it. I'm really just trying to address the movie for what it is. That's what he wanted to go for, or maybe that's all he had to work with, depending on the weather. And uh, Well, it was filmed in Ireland, right? Yeah. So that's what he had. So it, it just wasn't what I would like to see. So I'm just not impressed by it, I should say. But it's probably what he was going for. Uh, which is, you know, which is fine. But what, but something I want to transition to, besides the, the cinematography, um, is what goes with the cinematography that does help me through the movie is I do like the score of this movie. Oh, yes. Um, James Horner it, did James, a great job. James Horner did a great job. And if you look at James Horner's pedigree, he's had some fantastic movies to his name. Jeff, I just want to jump in there and say, hey, you know, I was about ready to talk about the uh, soundtrack and the <laughs> Why don't I? You know what? I'm sorry, Steve. I'm running your podcast tonight. I'm just jumping all over the place. I was going to say, I would just go. I have a. Oh, and by the way, what are we drinking? And ho, hey, let's go through the checklist. And oh, by the way, what did you guys think of the film? <laughs> hey, Steve Shortshanks is feeling feeling his kingliness, isn't he? I'll tell you what. It's this it's this beer I got tonight. Okay, and uh, David, we can't jump ahead. He's going to kill us. We've I already jumped ahead twice. God. I was going to say, I'm sitting here going, would you shut the f- up so I could get to the score? <laughs> I actually thought the score of this movie was very well done. Well, the score of this movie is very well done. You could probably put a, some of the, a couple of those in your uh, in your on your iPod. Some of them are really that good. And James Horner is really a great I consider a, a great composer. He has a lot of conductor credits to his name, and he's been involved in a lot. I mean, people would really recognize his work. I mean, he is. I think he did Glory. Um, he did clear, I mean, yeah. stuff like Clear and Present Danger, um, Apollo 13. Um, he did one of, I think, uh, at least one of my favorite movies. I can't speak for you all. Um, he did Field of Dreams. I mean, he just has a lot of, you know, a lot of great movies to his name. Of course, you know, he also has, you know, Willow and Red Heat. Um, there's our Star Wars connection, but, uh, um, he, he really is a solid, uh, composer um, or conductor, depending on what he's doing, that is what helps this movie out a lot, and, and in my opinion, at times, um, kind of saves the movie at certain scenes. But his compositions between the battle scenes and what you're and what you're hearing, as far as the music, even though it might be in the background, I mean, it, it really helps you through those scenes, and it is um, it, it is it is as well done as anything else we've talked about um, in our in our prior podcast. When you said uh, James Horner, I was looking at, uh, uh, he did Aliens. That was his music there. Uh, he also did uh, uh, Commando. And I thought to myself, really? I Although I did like the steel drum thing in Commando. I, I will just say that. And he did Willow and Red Heat. Uh, and H- Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, that's okay. Well, but you know, okay. hey. 
that's that's what those guys do, you know. So but they, but he they, also, I mean, you know, as much as we trounce on the movie, and we will never, ever utter on this podcast again. He did Titanic um, for all the ladies listening, um, but he did also things like you know Wind Talkers. He did Troy. He and dare I say Avatar. We won't be doing that one either. Obviously, obviously James Cameron is a fan of his. But yeah, I mean. All in all, I mean, you know, a, a very accomplished uh, composer, director. I mean, it's it it is one of the it's one of the highlights of the movie, and it is something that you could you know download and put it in your podcast. I mean, there's some very beautiful scores in this movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually, I thought the music, uh, Falkirk, was the way it. Yes. Yeah, I, do mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about, Jeff? Yes. It was like that yes. dramatic buildup. It was just like this slow. Well, in the first cavalry charge, where we see you know the toothpicks come out, yeah. um, the the rubber toothpicks themselves come out. Um, you know, it, it the the way that he has the music mirrored with that and the build up, and I mean, you know, it's coming, and and it is just it is very slow and methodical and and it, but strong at the same time, and and God, it 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 is so well done. Again, it is one of the strengths of this movie, and in my opinion, at times really saves certain parts of it. You know, gosh, you know, kudos to Gibson for picking him, and then kudos for James Horner of doing it. You know, before we move on to the next segment of the show, I, I really don't think I've actually uh, given my uh, full force of my uh, like of this movie. Oh, hold on, let me let me take a drink. Uh, yeah, you might want. Yeah, hold on, I need a drink. All right, when you're ready. Okay. Well, I do like this movie, guys. I, I know you guys got issues with the history. I know, you've got, you know Jeff's got issues with the irrelevant female role, which I do as well. But again, it's one of those things where we've talked about in the past is that there are very few movies out there that you can look at. If you're going to look at it, oh, that's very well done historically. They're not. They're just not done well historically. Unless you get down to you know like certain aspects of it, history is kind of boring. And Gibson even admitted, you know, yeah, a lot of stuff I did in this movie, I did it for dramatic effect. I so, disagree with you. Well, and here's why I disagree with you. All right, bring it. Let me get it. History, history is far more fascinating than we give it credit for. There are just tons of things throughout history that are just ready and pre-made for, for film. And all you got to do is just take the thing step by step and and put it on the screen. That whole truth is stranger than fiction is is completely true. But and I understand that there has to be some uh, some things that are sacrificed or inserted for the essence of filmmaking and for the audiences. But the problem I have with this movie is there is so much of this movie, Steve, is not factual and and taken out of context, taken out of timeline. The people aren't in the right place at the right time. Okay. Their their mo- their motivations are totally different. Um, so if we want, if we want to talk about history, I mean, this, in my opinion, this just gets it totally wrong. The other concern I have about movies and history is a lot of people learn their history from movies. If you were to go and have a conversation to us, you know, and nobody's going to do this but us, but have a conversation with a scholar about this movie. But even if you were going to try to present yourself as somebody that knew what the hell they were talking about, and you watch this movie and said, "Oh yeah, Braveheart is you know where I learned this," people are going to look at you like a freaking idiot. I agree, Jeff, but, you know, the thing of it is, is like I said, I look back at when we did the review of Gladiator, mm-hmm. and, you know, and we all love that movie, but we all know that's fictional history. It 
didn't happen. I mean, none of that stuff happened. It was very well made. It was very well done. All the acting was really good, although I don't like um, what the flips his name. The guy that played Commodus. Joaquin Phoenix. Joaquin Phoenix. That dude got, you know, <laughs> could they have gotten something else for that? But I digress. What I'm saying is, is that I look on this movie a lot like I look on that one. They were taking a period and they were kind of playing with it. And we all like Gladiator because who did Gladiator? Ridley Scott. We all like Ridley Scott. And he did it. I mean, he had the look, he had the feel and everything like that. Same thing with Braveheart. Yeah, they played around with everything. They, they took stuff that was not historical. Well, so did Brave, or, or so did Gladiator. I mean, Commodus did not kill Marcus Aurelius. All right, we all know that. That didn't happen. But they did in the movie. Well, because it added to the drama of the movie. It added to the whole plot, everything about it. So I, I kind of look at Braveheart in the same vein as Gladiator. It was an alternate history, if you will. I'm not going to look at this movie as saying this is what history was. What I look at that movie is, is that maybe this gets people interested in that period, that they'll go read up on it, or maybe they won't. Maybe they'll look at this and go, oh, my God, this is history. Well, hell, people do that all the time. So I don't know. I, I do. I like it. Yeah, I know what the faults are. I mean, I'm as much of a history buff as the rest of you guys are, but it is still one of those things where, yeah, I'll watch it. I think it's just well done. I think it's a great story. Real quick, before we go on to uh, Brother What We're Drinking, I want to really talk about the trivia in this movie because there's some pretty interesting stuff here. I'm going to start with number one. Uh, Director-producer Mel Gibson was investigated by an animal organization who were convinced that the fake horses used were real. Only when one of his assistants provided some videotape footage of the location shooting were they convinced otherwise. Uh, for those of you who have not seen this uh, wonderful and fantastic film, was the uh, massive cavalry charge that ended in disaster when the uh, Scots did the uh, classic uh, uh, phalanx move of, uh, oh, we're just going to pull up uh, spears. And, uh, yeah, welcome charging into those. Ended badly for the cavalry. Number two. When asked by a local why the uh, Battle of Sterling Bridge was filmed on an open plain, Gibson said, uh, well, the bridge got in the way. <laughs> and the local said, yeah, that's what the English found out. Because the actual Battle of Sterling was called the Battle of Sterling Bridge. And if you've played any of the Total War series, like us geeks, <laughs> you know you love to defend a river line. <laughs> yeah. And, but, Steve, let me just stop you there. I want to talk about that history fact, that you, are, that you know, that trivia fact you just brought up. Again, the Battle of Sterling Bridge, for you to actually recreate that battle, it's pretty boring. You have the Scots on one side waiting for the British to come across, and as soon as the British start coming across and get a few men over, they come and slaughter them, and the rest of the troops, the English troops, run away. It's a pretty boring battle that you wouldn't want to depict on the screen. Sure. So, again, I understand why Mel Gibson took some liberties there, because the actual battle was, was a rout, and it, it proved to be just pretty, pretty darn boring. And I want to say just real quick that the practical effects of this movie were outstanding. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about the horses and the effects of them and, and how it looked so real to people who, oh, I'm going to be careful here, you know, you know, like to find reasons to be pissy in the world. And, you know, and we're really concerned about these horses that ended up being these fantastic, almost like mechanical horses that they had created. 
and the maneuvers that they had them do to make it look like they were real horses. I mean, it was outstanding. And when you watch the making of this movie, you see exactly what we're talking about. It is so well done, so well done that, gosh, people actually thought horses were hurt during the making of this movie. Absolutely. And speaking of which, the next trivia point is the mechanical horses designed for the battle sequences weighed 200 pounds and were fueled by nitrogen cylinders, propelling them at 30 miles per hour on 20-foot tracks. Uh, The only way Gibson could make the film, and real quick, I'm going to back up. The biggest beef I had in the movie was Mel Gibson. I really didn't think he played this guy very well. I thought they could have got somebody better. I thought I thought they could have got somebody younger. And he, he was he was the star. I mean, he's at the height of his glory. Yep. I mean, he is the star power. Guys like him, women like him. Yep. That's why he's there. Well, but beyond a, that, I agree. Well, here's the part. Uh, it's a two part uh, trivia thing. Uh, Mill Gibson actually wanted Jason Patrick to play William Wallace. But, yeah, the only way Gibson could get the film made was if he agreed with Paramount Studios that he would star in the film. Damn film companies. Yeah, they wanted him. He did not want to be Braveheart, and he felt he was too old to play the part. That's why he wanted Jason Patrick, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around that, but I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I could see that. All right, uh, blue body paint which is known as Wode, uh, for battles that stopped being used at the end of the Roman era, which, again, was used for dramatic effect. I think that's one of those things where uh, they wanted to pull that out to make these guys look different, to separate. Yeah, I know, Mark, you're saying. Can I just say that because of that, I blame, this is one of those kind of, what do we blame George Lucas for? What do I blame um, Mel Gibson for? Every movie that came out after this that had Scots or Picts or Romans, where we had Scots or Picts, we had to paint these mother effers blue. Everybody had to have pale Prussian blue paint all over them. Thank you, Mel Gibson. <laughs> End of Bravo. Moving on. Uh, Brian Cox, who plays Argyle Wallace, was offered a larger role, but took the role of Argyle because he felt it was a better role. So, okay, I wanted to see more of him because I love that guy. I just, I just want to, you know, hug him and squeeze him and buy him lots of beer. You know, I really appreciate your uh, your bromance, your crush on him. <laughs> I really do. That, that's all right. I'm not ashamed. Now, here's one that I had no idea. And I'm still kind of questioning this, but Sean Connery. I'm going to take your nasty actual <laughs> Sorry, I could help myself. I had to do that. Uh, Sean Connery turned down the role of King Edward I because he was filming, wait for it, Just Cause. Good. Are you f***ing kidding me good it worked out better this way patrick mcgoohan was so terrific in this role i know but uh, uh, nah talking about sean connery i know but patrick mcgoohan just steals the movie i know he does but i mean you forget about that part and you think all right i'm gonna turn down the role of king edward the first so i could play this 
freaking ACLU lawyer in this? He's he played a lot of these, you know, elder statesman roles. This, this was, you know, that was nothing new for him. And again, I I just want to say thank you. I really really like the portrayal of Longshanks in this movie. I mean, really liked it. Like, I want to say that this was, you know, the reason that that guy was meant to be an actor. I agree with you 100%. It's just one of those where I, I guess it's that thing where I look at somebody who is of that stature of Sean Connery at that, at that point, and you're turning down this role for just cause. Well, Steve, we're talking about a guy that, that decided to do Zardoz. Okay, that's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> Miller, that's for you, buddy. Case, case you know, closed. I'm telling you what, Brian. That's our hundredth episode. Beer. <laughs> <laughs> you get Brian. I'm out. I'm out. Not. You're doing that one solo. Really? Yeah, you talk to yourself on yeah, that. You one. can talk to. You, and you can wear a red diaper while you do it. <laughs> we might. I just killed oh, one. On, really? For the 100th episode, you guys want to do Oh, my God. Why don't we just do Last Action God. Hero? Oh, wait. Someone oh, already did that. Come on. Last Action Steve, Hero has nothing to do Steve, I will say this. I will, let me, I'm going to throw this out there, and I can't believe I'm going to do it. I, I don't want to do it for the 100th episode. But if, for the love of God, for some reason, people want to listen to us, and we're at the 200th episode, I will do it for the 200th episode. Okay? All right. There you go, folks. I'll take one for the team on that one. So let it be written. So let it be done. <laughs> Thanks for jamming us up on episode 200. All right, let me finish the trivia so we can go on to the other stuff because I'm losing control here. All right, the first day of shooting was, wait for it, June 6, 1944, which was the 50th anniversary of D-Day. So there you go. Like it. The shoot, the sh- what, what? What? The that? shooting of June 6, the sh- Braveheart, nineteen forty four. You said nineteen forty four, Steve. You meant nineteen ninety four. I'm sorry. Oh my God! Have another drink. The, yeah. yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Steve misspoke. Take a drink. All right. The first day of shooting was June 6, nineteen ninety four, which was the fiftieth anniversary of D Day. <laughs> You know, this holds up really well for 1944. Okay. Yeah, it does, especially in color. <laughs> I mean, Mel, Mel Gibson, I mean, God, what is he now? 97? I know, you hate us all. Yeah, all right. Uh, although playing father and son, James Cosmo and Brendan Gleeson are only seven years apart in age. I love this part here. The movie has been accused of promoting... And I didn't even know this was a term, anglophobia. Yep, I heard about that. Really? That's, what, a fear of English people? Okay, all right. Everybody has a phobia nowadays. All right, whatever. All right, at the Battle of Falkirk, the English army was personally led by King Edward I, who decisively defeated the Scots, Uh, the real-life uh, King Edward I was a military genius who learned combat tactics in fighting the Marmalukes during the Eighth and Ninth Crusades. So, Marmalukes, not not Marmalites. No, oh dear, here Marmalukes. we go. Sorry, yeah. Marmaluke. Marmaluke. Isn't that like Marmaluke. a dog? That's that's Marmaduke. 
I don't have my freaking glasses on. It's, it's I, Mamelukes. It's everything I can do to... Is it Mamelukes or, or Mamelukes? That was or, Mamelukes. Yes. Well, I've heard Mamelukes, I've heard Mamelukes, but it's not Marmadukes. Moving right along. Uh, King Ed- Marmalades are sticky. <laughs> <laughs> but they taste good. <laughs> Come on, zip it, zip it, zip it. www.zipit.com <laughs> King Edward I was called Long Shakes, known as Long Legs, since he was uncommonly tall for a man of that time. Five uh, seven, at least six foot two inches. Oh, sorry. So he's actually taller than I am. You are a towering behemoth and an Adonis, and damn sexy, I might say. I love you, man. Zip it, zip it. It's Ken. Ken's not here to keep me in line. All right, so you know what? We're done with trivia, so we are going to move on with... One thing that's not so trivial. This movie raked in the money. Yes. It cost him $53 million to make, and he made over $211 million off this thing. That's, it was designed for that. And it's all because of Sophie Marceau. It oh, is because of Sophie Marceau. I mean... The irrelevant female role in the movie. Oh, thank you. I gotta give Forever her some noted. credit there. I give her some credit there. She did. It was yeah. a date movie. It was a it's date Pearl. Movie. It's Pearl Harbor in the 12th century. Oh Shut god. Up. There we go. <laughs> Shut up. All right, we're done. Uh, we're moving on to drinking. Could you figure that part out, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, gentlemen, what are we drinking tonight? Jeff, I have to move this one over to you, my good and dear friend, because. Uh, you're sober. in a high-spirited mood, <laughs> if you will forgive the pun. I, know, I really I, want to know what you're imbibing in tonight. So share with the rest of our listeners, what do you got? I think if we go back and do a podcast study, okay, you will find the nice that I'm highly animated. I am drinking alcohol above a certain content, okay? And if I'm just if I'm in the doldrums or just very sedated, you know, I'm in I'm in another alcohol content area, okay. And um, tonight, my wife, first of all, I got to give some kudos to her here. For my birthday, she went and got some glasses made for me, and I don't know if you all can see that on there, but she got me some glasses that um, she had. Uh, uh, forgive me, Steve, if we have any sort of copyright infringements here. But um, she took our logo and put a Man Cave movie review on a couple of pint glasses for me. Wow. Very nice. nice. Very nice. Yes. Our, our lawyers will be talking to Yeah, I thought so. Monday. I thought so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, our copyright know. lawyers will be talking yeah. with you. Nothing times nothing equals nothing. Carry <laughs> um, to nothing. Carry the nothing and yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, but I wanted to give her a little shout out. Not that she listens to the show anymore because she's tired of hearing me. The uh, yeah. So she got uh, she got me these uh, these nice little uh, pint glasses. I have two, so if you guys come over sometime, uh, somebody can drink out of one of them. But um, what I had this evening, uh, I I you know what? It wouldn't be me if I didn't completely break my oath of whatever I was going to do. So tonight I have with me the um, annual brew from Trader's Joe. Oh, how is the 2012? The 2012 vintage um, ale, yes. also known as the dark ale, coming in at a uh, a mild 9% alcohol. It's pretty good. Um, it did have to grow on me a little bit, just a little bit. And it actually reminded me of one of my, one of my um, well, I guess one of my, uh, of the five I've done, one of my earlier home brews that I did. 
it's actually a pretty solid beer. It is not as thick as a stout, but um, it has a, a distinctive taste. Um, again, it reminds me of a, of a beer I made one time, but nothing that I've really had recently. And in and it's pretty solid. And, and at eight ninety five, I think it's well <laughs> it's well worth the price. I'm going to see if I can go over and grab a few more of these. So at seven hundred and fifty milliliters, um, yeah, not big, not pretty bottles. Yes, they are, and uh, not not bad. So that's what I'm drinking, gentlemen. Mr. Mark, what do you got there, sir? Well, you know, I was up in your neck of the woods today. Anyway, I stopped in at 21st Amendment, and I bought a four-pack of Sun King Wee Mac Scottish-style ale. I had never had it before. It is really a nice ale. Not too hoppy. I know, Steve, you've drank it before, haven't you? Yep. It is good. I really like this beer. I like Sun King. I, I've got their other Aztec or whatever their Sun King ale is. But this Weemack is outstanding. Jeff, you would really like it if you've not tried it. Um, I, I think I've had it. Um, when you come up next time, we just might have to do a little beer stomp around Indianapolis, um, stop by there, okay. and um, go over by Flat 12. I don't think – if you guys haven't had their beer, I don't think you're going to be at all disappointed. Um, I've not and, been there yet. Um, I thought maybe, you know, when you guys come to, you know, when you come out to town, we might just kind of take, you know, whatever, an afternoon, early evening, evening, whatever. Sure, and, uh, and, and just kind of, you know, tool around. Actually, I don't know if you guys saw it, but there's like a, there's like a, I think it was called a brew bus. And actually, it will drive you around to the different local breweries here in Indianapolis. Ooh, really? It takes the, uh, transportation out of it. It'll actually do like a little, little microbrew hop for you. I just saw the advertisement for it today. But yeah, the, you know, the you know, Indianapolis, the, the beer scene here it's is hot. it is really starting to take off. I and mean, there's a lot of good breweries. And they are. They're very solid. I mean, again, this um, this flat twelve, they do they do a good tw- they do a good job. What are you drinking? What am I drinking? I am drinking. Well, let's see. What have I been drinking? Uh, hey, Steve, what are you drinking? Yeah, Steve, what are you drinking? Yeah, let's Steve, see. I drink. My, do you have a beer there? My lovely wife. Lovely, and she is lovely, by the way. She I'm a big lovely, fan of hers. And she takes good care of me. Uh, she went out and got the uh, the Christmas 12-pack that Sam Adams puts out. And uh, yeah. she stocked me up with quite a few of those because she knows. Did you save me the lamb back? No, they didn't make it this year. It's Son not, of a bitch! Thank God. Yeah, that's why I didn't buy it, Jeff. Because they didn't make it this year. Yeah. Because they finally realized nobody likes this shit except you two dorks. But anyway, moving on. I just got done drinking my favorite, the old Fezziwig Ale. Love that stuff. And then they also have their Holiday Porter, which is, I, I just don't understand why they don't put this thing out all the time. I mean, this should be a six-pack at least from Thanksgiving through the end of the year. I mean, seriously, if anybody from Sam Adams is listening to this podcast, this has to be a six-pack. For the love of God and sunny Jesus, I'm just telling you right now, make this. I I personally will make your profit margin. We're moving on to clips, our favorite part of the show. All right, this is, uh, this is where we first meet uh, Stephen. He is the Irishman who decides to join forces with the Scots. And the answer to your question is yes. You fight for me, you get to kill the English. Excellent! <laughs> I 
Excellent. And the expression on his face. Excellent. I, I like that guy's enthusiasm, don't you? Oh. Yeah. Nuttier than a shithouse rat, as my uh, grandfather would have said. Uh, but you know what? He, you needed that in this movie. And he, he was casted perfectly. Yes. I, and I mean, and he, does, he, he hardly has any time in the movie, but what he does have is outstanding. Here we go. I like this part. Stephen is my name. I'm the most wanted man on my island. Except I'm not on my island, of course. More's the pity. Your island? You mean Ireland? Yeah, it's mine. <laughs> it's mine. Yeah, I've got some of his because, I mean, next to Patrick McGowan, he chews scenery. So here, here's oh. here's another one. What the hell are the Irish doing fighting with the English? I wouldn't worry about them. Didn't I tell you before? It's my island. That, that guy is so delusional, it is outstanding. Yep. Yeah. And uh, here's another great clip. The Lord tells me he can get me out of this mess, but he's pretty sure you're f***ed. That's when you realize he's really nuts. <laughs> he's not really playing. And he likes this. Yeah. This is all... Great fun to him. Yeah. Yeah. He has totally come to peace that yeah. he's, he's going to die, and he just doesn't care. He's going to enjoy care. it. All right. Uh, another clip. This is uh, from um, Patrick McGowan, who is Longshanks, and he's going to tell you what the trouble with Scotland is. The trouble with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. <laughs> they, would, they would disagree, but. Yeah, well, uh, there you go. This is the kind of dad he is. One day you will be a king. At least try to act like one. And that's it. Got done bitch lapping his son. Yeah, I, I I like it when he you know smacks his son, knocks him to the floor, and the little yelp that he lets out. <laughs> that he continues to yelp throughout the movie. My God. All right, another Patrick McGowan uh, quote here. The archers are ready, sire. Not the archers. My Scots tell me their archers are miles away and no threat to us. Arrows cost money. Use up the Irish. The dead cost nothing. Wow. He's very efficient. Yeah. Oh, good lord. Okay, moving on. Another great clip. Because there's so many good ones here. Archers. A big pardon, sire. Won't we hit our own troops? Yes. But we'll hit theirs as well. We have reserves. Attack. Real quick, it's another one of those visual scenes, which is what makes Patrick McGowan so good in this movie is, you know, when the guy said, beg your pardon, sire, won't we hit our own troops? It was almost like the twist of his head where he paused for a second like, yeah, but that reserves. It's yeah. like It was like it was one of those where he looked at him like, yeah, we will hit our own troops, but. I've got more reserves than he does. And it was just that look on his face. And he did that throughout this movie. I like this part, too. But in truth, if she were to be killed, we would soon find the King of France a useful ally against the Scots. You see, as king, you must find the goods in any situation. And you know what? Too bad it didn't happen that way in the movie, huh? We would have been rid of her. All right, here we go. Gentle son. I like this part. Not, 
gentle son. The mere sight of him would only encourage an enemy to take over the whole country. (laughs) (laughs) He has some of the best lines in the movie. I I mean, the the disdain that he has just for everyone around him. It just really seals the show for me. All right, these next two quotes that I want to play is... um, This is when Robert the Bruce is meeting with his father and trying to drum up some support to basically start a rebellion against the English. These are some quotes that I think really put into perspective what it was like in Scotland and who was, um, you know, who is in charge. Maybe it's time. It is time to survive. You're the 17th Robert Bruce. The 16 before you passed your land and title because they didn't charge in. And I thought that was kind of a poignant um, poignant part. And I'm going to play one more quote from him, and I'm going to make a comment on what your thoughts. You admire this man, this William Wallace. Uncompromising men are easier to admire. His courage, so does a dog. But it is exactly the ability to compromise that makes a man noble. Okay, gentlemen, was that John Hausman? John who? Um, You mean his voice? Yeah, that's right. You're too young. He's too young. Yeah, he's too young. I just Um, a wee lad. It had a bit of Hausman, but not not as I thought it was him. Oh. No? Okay. I, I didn't see it. The voice? No? No. No. Mm, a little bit. You're just having a hard time with us tonight, aren't you? We're just being disagreeable. You are being disagreeable, sons <laughs> of bitches. All right. Steve, Steve, I think it sounds exactly like him. Who is he? I am, uh, I'm going to move on to this part. I didn't come here to fight so they could own more lands that I have to work for. Or me. Uh, when uh, for those of us that play Dungeons and Dragons, that's called a morale check. <laughs> it it was the oh shit! Here comes a lot of horses and a lot of men and a lot of armor. <laughs> I, I'm going to defecate right here and go home. I'm out. Uh, let's see. Uh, this last clip I'm going to uh, play because this pretty much sums up what Robert the Bruce, who was the he was the eminent heir of the King of Scotland. This is what he had to say about trying to unify Scotland. But from top to bottom, this country has got no sense of itself. Its uh, nobles share allegiance with England. Its clans war with each other. And that pretty much summed it up. Echo Jeff, I thought they did a good job of trying to explain the politics of the period. Yeah, I thought they did too. It's such a different time period from what we have now. <laughs> you know, I resemble that remark. Yeah, well, there we go. We're, we're, we're never going to do this podcast, are we? No. no. It's going to be another epic, I say. All right, no, we're done. We're done. We're, done. we're <clears throat> on to the checklist, gentlemen. Number one, did anyone jump out of a window? No. Next. If there had been glass, yes, but we did have someone be thrown out of a window, but no glass to shatter. Uh, Jeff, number two, I'm giving this one all to you, Chief. Was there an irrelevant female role in the movie? Here we go. Brace yourselves. It is so obvious. Yeah. Um, all right. 
Um, I, for those I, I, you, yeah, for those of you who aren't aware, Sophie Marceau, we could have done without her. I mean, she was major eye candy for the guys. She was, a, and she wasn't even that hot. What? No, dude. Really? Come on. No, you can't. You're gonna tell me you're gonna even check her walk, check her out walking down the street. I wouldn't even give her. I wouldn't even give. I wouldn't even notice her. Come on, man. She's just an average girl. Average at best. I don't even know if I get to number three. Nine <laughs> percent alcohol. You know, this show takes on a completely different feel when I got nine percent alcohol. <laughs> okay. Do you notice that again? Let's do uh, a podcast. Yes, it goes off the rails completely, and I blame Ken. <laughs> could the irrelevant female role be better played by Tommy Katane? Roseanne Barr this- could play a better role. Nine <laughs> percent alcohol. Goonie-goo-goo. What did Steve think of the irrelevant female role? Um, I will recognize that she was irrelevant in this movie, but uh, Sophie Marceau is smoking hot, despite what my good <laughs> and dear friend um, Jeff uh, has to say. Number five, did this movie know what it wanted to do? <laughs> yes. Yes. Number six, did George Lucas steal any part of this movie for Star Wars? An irrelevant uh, female lead. Who's a princess or royalty? <laughs> wears, wears stupid headdresses. And wears a really you know stupid headdress. You know what? I have to go back and look. Did she have ear buns? She <laughs> almost. Had, she almost did. Almost. She had a stupid headpiece like Princess oh, Amidala. <laughs> princess Amidala. Go look so at she, the two of them. Queen so Amidala, Queen, whatever. So Queen Amidala has been uh, demoted to Princess Amidala. Okay. <laughs> yes. She had to be a Just, princess at some point in her life, okay? No. Yeah, it's called it's called movie it's called moving up <laughs> in the ranks. Yeah, so. All right, number seven uh, was there a B five reference, Mister Muncie? No, nothing. Not even not even like a lighting technician, as far as I could tell. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, that is it. Uh, we have to go to the man cave movie review. Um, this movie it is a it's a good it's a guy movie. In the sense of it, it talks about a lot of the things that guys like in a movie. If you're a guy, it has great buddies. It's a good buddy movie. Um, it's got action. It's got adventure. It's got bromance. And it's got some really crappy romance. And it's got a great speech. We didn't talk about that. I love the speech before Sterling. You know, you need a good motivational speech. That one and the speech by King Theoden before the charge at Minas Tirith. Mm-hmm. Those are great motivational speeches. You know, the lying, lying in your bed near the end of your life. That's a great speech by Mel Gibson. I enjoy that. It knows what it wants to do. I think it's too long. Again, as I, I will circle back to what I said earlier in the podcast. I think that the parts are better than the whole. Um, I would have cut about 30 or 40 minutes out of the movie, but it does accomplish what it wants to. Do I like it as much as I did when I first saw it? No. Historically, I would give this, I'm going to give it two ratings. As a as a piece of history, and I, I side with Jeff about this, that he took so many liberties, this became fictional history, a la King Arthur, and we are never doing that movie. That's a horrible movie that has so much potential that I give it a five on that scale. As the Man Cave movie, I give it a seven seven five. Um, it, it tries to accomplish a lot. It, is, it tries to be an epic. It gets close, but it doesn't reach the scale of 
what I would call memorable epics that will go down in history. It does have its strengths, but I don't think that it it's one of my favorite um, epic style movies. So I have to give it a seven seven five. Okay, very good, uh, Jeff. Like Margo, I'm gonna give it two scores here. The historical reference to the movie because it is you know it it does not follow the history at all and it, so you know you, you can't take this into a uh, you know a high school history class and try to show it and present it as such and, and to a point i think it does do a little bit of a disservice um to the history and its portrayal of robert the bruce and the, the timeline of things the events that happened uh, the major players it is done very poorly in that sense, and and I'm I'm probably going to give it a um, a, a five based on um, historical uh, adaptation. the The movie itself for what Mel Gibson wants to do, and and Mel Gibson I think has a very clear vision, and he understand his 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 idea is to make something very entertaining and good for not for not for the whole family but for for the sort of the date night audience honey let's go let's go see this movie and by the way uh sophie marcel is in this movie and so if you can sell that to man and woman he was very successful in what he did um what i do enjoy about this movie and when i look at it from a movie standpoint forgetting the history I don't appreciate the cinematography, but I do appreciate the action sequences on the screen. And I do appreciate the arrangement that Mel Gibson does with the scene from scene to scene at times and what he has on the scene on the screen to show you. In addition to that, I I think that Horner does a great job with the with the music on the on the show. It it really does hold up very well. It's well done and it's mirrored to the movie very well. Um also, another strength for the movie is is the supporting cast and and even the 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 chambermaid that is with the princess. Again, Mark is she's very well done, um, and and adds it just adds a nice flair to the movie. If I've got to see the unattractive princess on the screen, but it it's very disjointed at times for me, and it doesn't flow well. I don't really, I guess, appreciate necessarily what Mel Gibson was trying to do, even though I see what he was trying to do. So because of that, e- even though there are a lot of strengths to the movie, I'm I'm gonna I'm just gonna give the movie a seven. I'm gonna give it a seven. I do think it's worth seeing, and I want people to see it to form their own opinions. I don't think it's a waste of your time because there are a lot of good things to see. I think there's just some stuff that you have to go through that's completely unnecessary and irrelevant and pointless and her name is sophie so seven is my number all right very good i don't know my final score on this movie is i have to give it about a seven and a half and i will say this part of it i have to echo what my uh uh colleagues have to say historically no it is not accurate it's very much uh like mark said uh fictional history they did take a lot of liberties in the movie but overall i think it's a good movie because what i'm looking at this movie is is for those people who are not um well versed in this uh, particular period of time they will go uh, watch this movie and learn about this uh this period and that's what i think stuff like this is i mean even mel gibson said during uh when he was making the movie yeah he did stuff to increase the dramatic effect to make you know, to make it more interesting and so I can understand that it is a uh, in my book a must see movie 
All right, folks, that's it for Man Cave Movie Review, episode 37. Stay tuned for us next week. We're going to be talking about open range. Uh, so check us out on uh, our website at uh, www.mancavemoviereview.com. Also look for us on iTunes at Man Cave Movie Review. And leave us a comment. Let us know if you liked the show or didn't like the show. Or if Jeff just doesn't like uh, the kind of women that I like. Uh, we're also on Facebook at... I like Deb. She's all right. Uh, nice save. <laughs> I mean, I, I, still wonder, I still wonder why the hell she's with you. I do, too. Every every day I come home, like, you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> that came out wrong. You realize that? I know it does. That's why, that's why I have an editing tool. Oh, <laughs> also, also check us out at our Facebook page. Look for us on Facebook at Man Cave Movie Review. We're also on Twitter. Follow us there at Man Cave Movie. So this is it. Until then, I am your host Steve Michaels, signing off with my good and dear friend Mark. Does this kilt make my ass look fat slower? Hey, Steve, Jeff. Great thing about this movie and. Uh the Patriot, also done by um, Mel Gibson, is between the two of them, you really learn how he feels about the British. Boy, does Mel Gibson hate him some British. <laughs> All right, folks, and last but not least is my other good and dear friend, Jeff Shortshanks Muncy. Before we let you all leave, our podcast host must cross this field, present himself before this audience, and put his head between his legs and kiss his own arse. <laughs> nice. That was awesome. Love it. All right, folks. So hope you enjoyed the show. This is me, your host, Steve Michael, signing off. Ciao. I thought about you last night. Oh my Were God. you on clothes? I was. I was clothed, oh. and I'm glad. Nice, nice, nice. Um, but I, uh, I had, I had gone down to our laundry room and, and I had to do some laundry. I picked up a, a wad of, uh, of of linens that we had put down there and put them in the washing machine. Went upstairs and I was going to change my clothes, and I you know, went to unbutton my shirt and I like grazed something and I just kind of, you know, just kind of like I don't know brushed it or something and i saw it fell off my shirt it was a spider this big okay. all right and i thought two things that thing could have sucked the life out of me <laughs> and if steve was here i would have been clothed in half all right killed it because got it you would have you would have said i'm sorry jeff You're yeah. because that thing is going down <laughs> That's what's called collateral damage. I you know, just, that's right. <laughs> I said I would have been a dead man if that katana and you were here. <laughs> but, you would have apologized he, afterward. Yeah. A little he blue was, on blue is always necessary. <laughs>